Well, good morning. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here for those of you who are visiting. And we have been spending the last couple of weeks running up to Easter, just preparing our hearts. And last week we explored a question uh, that I, I have heard several times asked, and that is simply, why did Jesus have to die? Right? What is the point of the cross? If God is God and he created everything and he makes the rules, then why did Jesus have to die in the first place? And if you weren't here, um, I would encourage you to grab a CD in the back. You can also go on lighthousecommunity.com and you can listen to it. Um, it's all there. And I encourage you to dive in. One thing I do want to remind us from last week, it was a point that I feel like is an important one for us to, to really wrap our, mar- our, our heart around, and that is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. There's no shifting and changing with him. It's not like God was cranky and upset in the Old Testament and Jesus shows up and all of a sudden he's happy. He has been a God who loves from the very beginning. And even in the Garden of Eden, we saw last week that even there he was in pursuit of his prodigal children. And we talked a little bit about how a Bible can very easily begin to feel a little bit like a book of rules. Dry, Like this is the law that God, when we screw up, will cite chapter and verse and say, this is why I'm going to strike you down with an IRS audit or with cancer or with a cold or something like that. Right. Why your girlfriend's going to break up with you is because whatever. The reality is when we begin to recognize that God is the same all the way through, this is more like a love story. God is the main character. He is the central character. It is his story. And he's been in pursuit of his creation from the very beginning. And so, again, grab that. That's why, by the way, he sent Jesus to die for us. To do for us what we could never have done for ourselves so that he could redeem us from the pits that we had dug. He could break the chains that sin had created in us, that, you know, break the shame that causes us to run into hiding so that we could be reunited with him. That's why Jesus came, and that's why Easter is such a big deal. Now go ahead, and if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the, in the seat fronts in front of you, and I'd encourage you to grab one and follow along. We're going to camp out in John 12, because today is a day that we call in the Christian calendar Palm Sunday. It is the day that we celebrate uh, some 2,000 years ago. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, thronged by people shouting his praises and excited. But before we actually look at that passage, I simply want to give us a little bit of context as to what's going on so that when we read this, it'll make sense. Jesus entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of a week uh, where it was an annual festival celebrating the Passover. It was a feast that once a year, all of the Jews from all over the region would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate, perhaps to them, was the most single Uh, greatest act of redemption in their history. They celebrated the time when God showed up and they were captive, enslaved in Egypt, and through a series of plagues, he broke the will of Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in in the world at that time, and led his people out through the wilderness, feeding them the whole way, and ultimately led them into the promised land. When God proved himself to be God, that's what they came into Jerusalem to celebrate. And there were thousands upon thousands of, of people in the city that didn't normally live there, but that had come in to celebrate the Passover during that time. They had come to celebrate what to them was the single greatest act of redemption in their history. Little did they know that they were about to be eyewitnesses to an even greater one. The other thing, though, 
is that many of these people, these travelers into Jerusalem, had been hearing tales of a rabbi who was unlike any other rabbi or teacher that they had ever heard of. This guy, rather than simply quoting scripture, he spoke with authority as if he was the one who wrote the scripture. But he was more than talk. Because this rabbi Jesus was healing people. He was casting out demons. He was feeding multitudes of people. And in fact, just a little while before, he had actually raised somebody from the dead. And people are beginning to talk, who is this? Could this be the, the Messiah that we have been waiting all this time for? And so there was a lot of energy surrounding Jesus. And so as he's making his way in, we're going to read now in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, this great crowd that had come for the festival of Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Well, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it's written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now, at first, his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified, meaning after he was killed and ultimately raised from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, this guy that he had raised from the dead and and, and had raised him from the dead, they continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this particular sign of raising someone from the dead, they went out to meet him. So we see that there are crowds of people thronging around Jesus. And the question we have is, why are they there? What is going on? Why are they so excited? Because the reality is they had very specific expectations of who Jesus was. They believed that he was their Messiah, God's anointed Redeemer who has come to save them. And yet, those same people At least many of the same people that are in that crowd on that day shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed be the King of Israel! I bet that many of those people in that crowd are in the same crowd some five days later who are screaming, Crucify him! Crucify him! And I've always wondered, what what happened? How do we go, how does public sentiment change so radically from Sunday to Friday? That people would be singing the praises of Jesus and calling him the king in one moment and then shouting for his death the next. That's what we want to explore this morning. How did this change? What was going on? And in order to do that, I want to take about a a 10-minute detour into history. I want to look at some of the expectations that the people were carrying with them into Jerusalem that day as they watched Jesus walk into Jerusalem. Now, if you go back through Scripture, back throughout the Old Testament especially, you find this kind of double thread running throughout. The first part of the thread states basically that God came to the people of Israel and said, you will be my people. I love you. I've created in you my image. And now I have actually called you to be my representatives. And all throughout Scripture from Genesis on, we see that God has pursued his people and he has basically said, I will bless you. However, this blessing was contingent upon their obedience, their, their being faithful to him. Because God ultimately said, listen, if you choose to run after other idols, if you choose to run after other gods, if you basically say, I want to be the captain of my own ship, I don't want anything to do with you, then I'll let you go. 
I will let you run to these things and you will quickly find that they have no ability to save you like I do. You'll quickly find yourself in a world of hurt. But I will let you go. And so we see kind of this cycle that happens throughout the Old Testament. And for those of you who have read the whole thing, you start getting irritated when you see God blesses his people, puts them into a position of, of just blessing, and they go, we love you, God, and then they get complacent and comfortable, right? And then they begin to kind of look around and go, oh, what's over here, you know? And they start kind of flirting with the things around them, the, other, the gods of the other nations. They begin to kind of rely a little bit more on their own strength. God gives them over to it, and they quickly find themselves in a world of hurt. And then they, they cry out, God, help us. And God raises somebody up to save them, whether it's a prophet or a priest or a king. Somebody is raised up to help them. And they find themselves kind of pulled out of the mire that they had created through their own sins. And they go, God, we love you. And then the whole cycle starts again because they get complacent and so on and so forth. One generation forgets about God completely. He redeems them. They celebrate God and then they quickly forget. And all throughout that, as we see throughout Scripture, is that God just doesn't do it himself. He will often invite people in to help. He'll raise somebody up. For instance, when the people found themselves enslaved in Egypt, he raised up a guy named Moses, who didn't feel at all like he was capable of going and speaking to Pharaoh and saying, let my people go. But God goes, you're my guy. And he anointed him with his spirit to be able to have the ability to do that. And then he used a bunch of plagues to break the back of Pharaoh. Then the people are led through the wilderness and into the promised land. And once they get there, they get complacent. They forget about God. Everybody does what they think is best. And from time to time, they would get in trouble and God would raise up a judge. He would anoint them to, to kind of break the people out of their stupor. Kind of set them back on the path. But even then, they very quickly fell back into it. And so judge after judge after judge is raised up. Finally, God just goes, hey, you know what? I need to bring these disparate tribes together. And so he raises up a guy named Samuel to be a priest, to be God's representative to the people. God's going to be the king, but Samuel was his representative. And he began to speak the words of God to his people, he began to bring these tribes together. But even that wasn't enough for the people because they start looking around and going, well, all the other nations have kings. We only have our God being our king. We want, we want a king like everyone else. And Samuel's like, seriously? They would choose a, a person over God? God goes, listen, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. So give them what they want. And they choose the tallest person out of the entire tribes, this guy named Saul, who looks on the surface like an amazing king, but really he's, he's rotten through insecurity. He leads not with the spirit of God, but through his own insecurity. And the people get what they want. And they suffer for it. And finally God says, enough of this. I'm going to redeem my people. And so he anoints a guy named David, a shepherd boy, who will ultimately become the greatest king that Israel ever knew. And so we see time and again when people find themselves in trouble, he raises up someone. And oftentimes what would happen is that when God chose that person to be their redeemer, he would have that person anointed with oil as a tangible symbol of his spirit falling on that person to empower them to do what he's been calling them to do. We saw that with David. When, when God said, this is my guy, he's going to replace Saul as the king, he had Samuel the priest pour oil over David's head to anoint him. In Hebrew, the word anointed one simply is Messiah. And that's where we get that term, Messiah is the anointed one, the person who has been anointed to redeem God's people. Anybody know what, how you say anointed one in Greek? 
Christos or Christ. It's not Jesus' title. Or it's not Jesus' last name. It is a title, meaning anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, we see time and again that God promises, regardless of how far you fall, regardless of how bad things get, I will never let you go. You may be unfaithful to me, but I will never be unfaithful to you. You may, you may break the covenant with me, but I will never break my covenant with you. And I will send a redeemer. I will anoint a redeemer who will save you. This person will lead you out of captivity back towards me. So about 160 years before Jesus came on the scene, the Israelites, or the Jews, we, we call them Jews at that point, found themselves in a world of hurt. They, they had been overrun by a nation called Syria. And their, the Syrian king didn't believe in the God of Israel one bit. He was pagan. He worshipped Zeus, not Yahweh. And so this pagan king, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, outlawed the worship of Yahweh. And in fact, he deposed the high priest at the temple in Jerusalem and he installed his own pagan high priest who then turned around and began to sacrifice pigs, an unclean animal, on the altar to Zeus, which was a total affront to God. And the people of Israel, the Jews, had had enough. And so a small band of revolutionaries led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus rose up and they forcibly removed uh, the Syrian kind of occupiers from Jerusalem, took back the temple, cleansed it. They, they only had a little bit of oil, and that oil lasted for eight days, which is where we get the menorah. All of that kind of stuff that we celebrate on Hanukkah points right back to Judas Maccabeus and that whole revolution going on. So he raises up, he wins, and Psalm 118, you don't need to turn there, but if... You can if you like, but in Psalm 118, it became basically the battle hymn of this revolution. I'm just going to read a few verses here. This is from Psalm 118. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but I will live and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. I'm going to skip down here to verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It has become, the Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day, so let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. You translate save us, Hosanna. Lord, Hosanna, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord Yahweh is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. So with, with palm branches, with boughs in our hand, with, we will join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar because you are my God, I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, his love endures forever. This was their battle hymn. The battle hymn of revolutionary. So... We hear words like, Lord, save us, Hosanna. And then you come to John chapter 12. In fact, before I get ahead of myself here, that was their battle hymn. That was their cry. And the palm branch became a symbol of the revolution. In fact, do we have pictures of the coins? Judas Maccabeus and some of, uh, of those who came after him actually had temple coins. Rather than using the occupier's money, they printed their own coins. And you'll notice that on both of these, 
We have palm branches. On the one on the left here, there's a palm branch, and then the one on the right, you can see an entire palm tree. That became for them a symbol of revolution, a symbol of God's banner over us. He is in charge. He is our God. And the palm branch from Psalm 118, saying with palm branches in hand, we will go up in the festival presentation, that became an important symbol of revolution. Okay, so now with that, look back here at John chapter 12. Context, context, context. Chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, this great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they began to lay him down. I I stole this from up there. I'll put it back in, I promise. So they stole palm branches from somewhere. And they began to shout and sing, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, the first two, Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken directly from Psalm 118. The same one where they got this idea for a palm branch. That third one, blessed is the king of Israel, isn't found in Psalm 118, but it flows directly out of this messianic expectation that God would anoint a redeemer who would rise up, throw off whatever the oppressor is that they are are enslaved by, and ultimately would become the new king of Israel. Do you see that they're bringing a ton of messianic expectations into Jesus' entry into Jerusalem? There's a ton of it. And Jesus was aware of it. Jesus was fully aware that they expected him to come in as a king, kind of cut from the same cloth as Judas Maccabeus, and throw off whatever oppressive hand that they thought that they had. And of course, to the Jews, in the time that Jesus is entering in, they had in their mind a very clear idea of who that enemy is. Rome. Well, of course it's Rome. Because just as, you know, the Syrian king had oppressed them during the time of Judas Maccabeus. Well, Jesus, Rome now, and Caesar is oppressing us. So, of course, you're coming to clear this out, and of course, you're going to come as a conquering king and take back what obviously belongs to God. But Jesus was very intentional about trying to temper some of those expectations. Yes, he was the Messiah, but no, he was not the type of Messiah like Judas Maccabeus. And he tried to show them that he wasn't bringing a sword, rather he was bringing peace. Because he did something really interesting. He intentionally sent a couple of his disciples, if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll see that he actually sends a couple of his disciples to go into town and grab a donkey and its colt. He says, bring them to me. Okay. Because he's been staying up at this place called the Mount of Olives, which is couple hundred yards outside of the walls of Jerusalem. I actually remember standing in the, on the Mount of Olives, looking down into Jerusalem, and it's just a little valley in between. I could walk in in about ten minutes. And Jesus has spent his entire ministry, three years, walking everywhere. And yet the first time we hear about him writing something is to go two or three hundred yards into the city. What's going on here? Well, he was intentionally, specifically pointing to a very specific messianic passage found in Zechariah chapter 9. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read this for you. This was a very clear messianic prophecy that Jesus was pointing directly to. And he said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly or humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. You see, when a king was coming in during a time of war, he would very naturally ride a war horse because we are at war right now. But when a king was during a time of peace, you don't ride the war horse, you save that for war. You would ride a donkey. It was an act of basically declaring, I am ushering in peace. And if there's any question about that, we just keep reading here in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus was basically declaring to all the people who were congregated that day with their palm branches swinging and their shouts of Hosanna, save us. He's saying, I am bringing in peace. Yes, I'm your king, but I am ushering in a season of peace. I'm sure the people saw that And basically, we're getting even more excited. Oh, he is our king. He's declaring it. He's riding this colt, just like in Zechariah 9. And they probably thought, yeah, he's going to usher in peace, but it's going to be peace at the edge of a sword, right? He's going to conquer Rome, and that's how we're going to have our peace. Little did they know that Jesus' idea of ushering in peace was very different. See, they were expecting a conquering king. He was coming as a sacrificial savior. They were expecting him to enter in and clean out the palace. But one of the very first things he did when he entered into Jerusalem was to go into the temple courts and to begin upturning the tables and cleanse the temple. They expected him to live as a king in the palace. Jesus was coming to die on a cross as their savior very different type of Messiah than who Judas Maccabeus was. And because of that, because he didn't look the same as as previous messianic figures, because he didn't live up to their expectations, many of them rejected him. You know, there's a, expectations are a very dangerous thing in any relationship. I would guess for those of you who are married, many of your fights come because some of your expectations have not actually been met, even unspoken ones. Because the thing with expectations is they present us with a very clear picture of what we expect. This is what, this is what I deserve. This is what I need. This is what you should do. And more often than not, the pictures that we're presented with with our expectations don't line up with the reality. Who we think we should get And who we actually get are two very different things. And when that happens, we're left with a choice. Either we tear up our picture, we tear up that list of expectations, and we embrace the person, the real person in front of us, or we embrace our list of expectations and we start tearing up the person in front of us. That's exactly what many of the Jews, not all of them, But many of the Jews, starting from the the Pharisees and the religious elite on down, many of the people expected one thing. And when Jesus didn't match that picture, they rejected him out of hat. You're no revolutionary leader. You're not going to lead us to overthrow and depose Rome. Because Jesus wasn't coming to take over Rome. He wasn't coming to reestablish Israel as the preeminent nation in the world. He was coming to take over, uh, to, to depose an even greater enemy than Rome. Jesus was coming to break the shackles that sin had on us from Genesis chapter 3 on. Shackles that separated us from our God. That is the enemy he came to depose. 
not Rome. Because his vision of what his purpose was was much greater than just Israel. Israel was a nation created to be a kingdom of priests representing God to the rest of the nations. God's goal always was the rest of the nations as well as Israel. And so he didn't fit their picture, and many of them rejected him. Now, the question that we always need to ask whenever we read Scripture, after we get our context, after we've kind of understood what, it, what, it was, this, what was going on for them, what did this mean to them, then we ask the question, well, what does this mean to us today? What do we learn in this? Because my guess is this. My guess is that many of us, like those Israelites, like those Jews on that day, Jesus walking in, are carrying with us expectations of what it means to follow God. Carrying our own expectations of what we think will happen if and when we give our hearts to Jesus. Maybe some of you simply expect, or maybe you've even been taught, that if you give your heart to Jesus, He will protect you, He will provide everything you need, He will take care of you, and your life will be much more smooth and much more comfortable than it was without Him. Right? If you give your heart to Jesus, he will satisfy the cravings of your heart. He will protect you from pain. He'll protect your loved ones from being hurt. He'll, he'll satisfy that American dream of the house, the spouse, the 2.3 children or whatever, you know. And all of them are going to be healthy and all of you are going to be happy and you're never going to want for anything. And there are certainly people who will preach that type of a gospel, but it's not a gospel I see throughout Scripture. In fact, I see a very different gospel. I see a gospel in which Jesus, the night before he was arrested, declared to his disciples, guys, listen, in this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you're going to have pain. In this world, people will persecute you because of your faith. Because you believe that Jesus, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But he didn't stop there, thankfully. He went on to say, but I have overcome the world. So even though your bodies will break down, and you're not promised that you won't get cancer, you're not even promised that you won't die from cancer, you can take heart in the fact that I have overcome even that, and cancer won't get the last word. Even though you're not guaranteed that your heart will not be broken by somebody that you open up and invite in. By a spouse, by a child, by a boyfriend or girlfriend. Heartache will not get the last word because of the cross. Even though you're not promised that you won't struggle with depression, anxiety, addiction. You can take heart in the fact that because of the cross, those things don't get the last word. And at the end of the day, even though we are not promised that we will not die, in fact, we're promised that we will, even that doesn't get the last word. That's the hope we find in him. He also told his disciples, listen, if anybody wants to come after me, if any of you want to follow me, then you must choose to take up your cross daily. And follow me. Because he who chooses to try to save his life is going to ultimately lose it. And those of you who are willing to lose your life for me, you're going to find it. Not just life momentarily, but eternal life, which means intimacy, connection with me. So that's the heart here. Many of us have carried expectations into our relationship with Jesus. Basically saying this. 
God, I will choose to follow you. I will give my heart to you. Jesus, you can be the Lord of my my life so long as you take care of these things. My family, my, my, my needs, my, you know, whatever it might be. God, so long as you fix these things, you've got me. But, but if you don't, then I'm out. And we begin to curl the fingers of our hearts around these desires because there's nothing wrong with having desires. Absolutely nothing wrong with carrying hopes and dreams and fears and, and, and requests into our relationship with God. But the moment we begin to wrap the fingers of our heart around it and they go from desires to demands, that's when things change. Because that's when we basically say, God, I will only follow you so long as you meet these things. And if this doesn't happen, if this person that I care about, that I've been lifting up to you, if this person dies, I'm out. If he breaks my heart again, if she breaks my heart, I'm out. When we begin to do that, we are basically making demands of God that says, I want to be in control and you're not. You will kowtow to my demands or I'm done. Now, I look at Jesus. I I think Jesus is a great example of this, right? He had very specific desires. The night that he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, kneeling down praying, he goes, God, if there's any way we can do this a different way, please, let's do that, right? I love the fact that Jesus was human enough that he didn't want to suffer on the cross. So there was a very clear desire. But what's the next thing out of his lips? But not my will, but yours be done. It is perfectly okay for us to have desires of our God, to bring them to him. He is a God who understands our hearts so well, we can come just as we are. And yet, we need to be careful not to wrap the fingers of our hearts and make them demands. Because when we do that, that's when we begin to pull ourselves away from him, kind of like the Jews did all throughout their history, saying, this is more important, my freedom, my whatever I want, is more important to me than trusting you. I want, to be, I want to be the captain of my ship. I don't trust you enough. And so basically, this morning, we have before us two choices. The one is to say, God, I will follow you only so far, only so long as you meet these things. But the other one is basically to, to take a page out of the, the disciples' book. When other people were walking away from Jesus, because, man, that's some hard teaching, and I, I don't understand it. And he looked at his disciples and said, are you going to leave too? Where else are we going to go? You're the, only ones with the, you're the only one with the words of life, and you are our Lord. We'll follow you even unto death. So ultimately, the choice is yours. This morning, as, as I wrap up, I, I, I want to invite you to just bow your heads with me. And I'm going to pray for us. And I would ask you to, right now, because I think that sometimes our, our minds and our hearts follow the posture of our body, I want to invite you to put your hands out with your palms open. And I just want you to consider right now, what are the hopes, the desires, maybe even the demands and expectations that you have been bringing into your relationship with God? What are the things that in many ways you have struggled to fully relinquish into his hands and just say, God, your will be done. And I, want you to cons- I just want you to picture right now that they're sitting in your palms. Maybe for some of you, it truly is that the fingers of your heart have been clenched around them and you're white knuckling them. 
because you're terrified that if you were to even give up a little bit of release, if you were willing to open up just a little bit, your fear is that God would take that from you. What I have discovered in my own life is this. Sometimes God will take the very things that we're afraid of and say, that's not my will. And that's his grace because he is God and we are not. When he actually gives us the demands, when it's, even if it's not his desire, that's actually his judgment. Kind of like what he did with the, the Israelites when he said, fine, you think you know better? Here, have it. So, Father, would you give us the courage right now to lay, to, to open, to uncurl the fingers of our hearts and to simply present you with the things that have been standing between us and you, the things that we have carried into our relationship with you. You know how deeply they're tied to our hearts. You know the emotions that are connected to them. This is not a clean, easy thing for us to do. And would you even give us the strength right now to truly open the palms of our hearts and say, God, here I am. And here this is. I submit it into your hands. Your will be done. God, we ask that you would fill us up with courage. Would you fill us up with the eyes to see you for who you are? to know just how deeply you love us and to be willing then to follow you and trust you even when our pathways may lead to the cross or to more suffering. Would you use us as your ambassadors of hope to a world that's broken and hurting? We give you our lives and we invite you to have your way with us. God, we come just as we are. We ask that your will be done for your name's sake.